Yeah. And so like the reality is like the cost of that is, is actually very high, you know, in terms of uh, production time because we're actually paying, you know, ourselves and employees now as opposed to when you weren't, we weren't paying anybody. You didn't have any, you were like, Oh, time ourselves. Who cares? Yeah. And so yeah. it's very easy to, I'll be just as broke at the end of this as yeah, I was at the exactly. beginning. Exactly. It doesn't really matter. Nothing has changed. Butterscotch Hey everybody, welcome to episode 438 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch Shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm the miscellaneous programmer. I'm Sam and I'm drinking honey lemon tea. Ooh. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today's October 19th, 20 Jubilee. Before we get started, we have a warning there's going to be profanity in this show. I, I got it in. I, I got it. It's been there. Just got to squeeze it. I need up. a. I need. A, we need a soundboard where I can just. I can say that. You know, record it. Speed it up. Double mm. it. Like those just little disclaimers in, in yeah, medical yeah. commercials. You know, just bam, slam that thing right as soon as I get my last word in, and then we're good to go. Every time I hear my wife listening to a podcast, it sounds like those those disclaimers because she listens to everything on like two x speed. You know, so me I too. Just, I just hear just this like complete nonsense stuff and I'm like I, chaos I know you can get used to it but every time I hear it just like in a drive-by you know I'm just like what the fuck <laughs> what am I Dude, listening to I have I've tried to do that so many times and I've actually found that I listen to podcasts better if I listen to them at three-quarters speed oh really oh my god that sounds because painful. well because uh my mind wanders all the time and yeah so then and not too much has I happened miss something by the time right so so it's like no matter if it's going too fast, then I can't even I – ha I have to like really pay attention to it and if I – which I can't do. <laughs> and if I stop paying attention for like mm. two seconds, I've missed like a whole sentence and then I've got to I speed go it back, up you know? so that I pay more attention to it, if that makes sense. Interesting. it's going I, so fast that I'm like, wow. Yeah, mm. I used to do – so I used to do like 1.75 um, because I was trying to – capture kind of similarly like it was easier to pay attention when it's like or i guess I, it was easier to make myself have to pay attention because like mm -hmm. if i wanted i would lose stuff you know but I'll, but that yeah. way also i could have to pay attention for less time right but for a few years now i think especially like when we're getting in the car and stuff when i would drive to work you know and all of that like being able to mm -hmm. get a whole bunch done really quickly and then get out of the car again you know it was kind of nice but ever since then i actually mostly listen to just happen to like hear some stuff that I think might be interesting, but so that, so that there's something happening though, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like, mm -hmm. so I don't want to speed it up because then I consume my podcast episodes too fast. That's true. Because a lot of what I'm doing is just, is just kind of just zoning in, in and out, you know, but decorating time with the yeah, podcast. Yeah, just decorating time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You just need a little podcast garnish, you know, yeah, when, yeah. You're, when you're doing your chores or It just makes everything a little less boring if there's some mm -hmm. So you don't want to be fast because that's, I mean, that's not decorating anymore. That's yeah, and it also makes it harder to do other stuff, you know, so like, I kind of just am always listening, like I get up in the morning when I'm getting ready for the day, I'm just listening to podcasts, you know. Because mm -hmm. yeah. ever experienced this thing where like, I remember this pretty vividly, especially from like growing up, is being at like a family reunion or some kind of like a bit a large get together, and then being like, "I'm gonna go take a nap. I'm fucking tired, right?" And like mm -hmm. going off and finding some corner or something, and then as you're as you're kind of like drifting in and out of sleep, you kind of like catch snippets of people yep. of like conversations and jokes and stuff. Is that is that's what it's like, right? It's yeah, like you got a podcast hand. going on, and your brain is kind of like phasing in and out of the of the mm -hmm. of the listening experience. Well, I think know? it's just also most of the time, it's, it's, it's this phenomenon that we're always talking about, right? Where 
the more you learn about stuff, the more the information sources that you have access to are just kind of stuff you mostly already know or that isn't mm-hmm. isn't it's high level much beyond that where you need to pay yeah. a lot of attention to it to get it, you know. So a lot yeah. so so much now too of like what my podcast listening experience is is just filtering largely noise, right? It's just mostly stuff I already know. So, so having it be something that just kind of happens in the background where, cause it is like every once in a while I'm like, Ooh, I actually want to know about that thing that I just mm-hmm. heard, you know? And then I'll like go back a bit and like actually focus on it until that part's over, you know? And then kind of let myself drift it into the background again. So it also kind of just serves as a mechanism to you know, just to kind of make, make things a little less boring. Cause there's always just something going on, which is good for ADHD brains, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But then, uh, but then over time, I've just had to do that to be able to get stuff to float above the noise without otherwise. It's just a, it's just a volume game. It's just a volume like, problem. Yeah, it's something. I, so I've, I've been playing a ton of Baldur's Gate since it came out, uh, starting to kind of ramp down because I've done like every conceivable thing in the mm-hmm. game. But uh, it, toward the beginning, I was l- looking up a lot of YouTube videos and stuff about like interesting tips or like cool spells that you wouldn't normally think about, you know, whatever. And, uh, and that kind of like primed my YouTube algorithm, I guess. So now it's just like showing me a trillion Baldur's Gate videos Mm -hmm. whenever I open it. But now, now that I'm way deeper into the game, it's like you're talking about Adam. Yeah. All I'm getting is just, all I'm getting is videos that are like, have you ever used this spell before? It's crazy. I'm like, yeah, like a thousand times. I was was (laughs) born wielding that spell. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it is true that yeah, like the, the deeper you go with like the more, you know, about stuff, uh, the more likely it is that anything that you see, you've just, you've already, you already know it. You've already seen it. I yeah. mean, you gotta like kind of sift through, which takes forever, but well, know, especially for, about, the, for uh, the kind of content too, right? Cause the kind of content there's always the most of is the kind of content that people appeals to everyone that appeals to everybody is, or that is more readily makeable by the most number of people, which means it's always stuff that if you're in an actual process of learning is like, it's just in your rearview mirror. Yep. Stuff you just just did as a new player or something. Yep. Uh, well, so this episode we don't have a ton of news. Um, you know, some some stuff has happened. I think like the Unity CEO stepped down, and mm-hmm. the Microsoft uh, Activision Blizzard King merger mm-hmm. thing is now finalized, which we mentioned last week. Um, but you know, there's like they're just it's, sort of just, facts, just, it's just the regular stuff yeah. kind of happening now in the industry. Nothing sort of earth shattering. And then Crashlands 2 production is just cruising forward. That's going well. Um, so we thought, you know, we'll we'll uh, just hit some questions this episode mm-hmm. and see what our listeners want to want to know about. What so you got? Uh, these questions come from podcast.bscotch.net. The highest upvoted question comes from Panit Pawaka, who says, having gotten into this podcast around the launch of Levelhead, I can't help but feel sad to have missed mm. the vast majority of the events like Shenanicon or the Shenana Jam that you all used to put on. The three of you have extensively explained why you don't do these things anymore, but are there any ideas you would have liked to do that never got a shot? Mm. Things we also didn't decide to do? Is that another category? <laughs> Or or we wanted to do, but then you know decided just, not to. Uh, yeah, I mean related to that, we always wanted to have really good merch, like yep. some levelhead plushies, you know that kind of stuff. But those are the things that like we had a merch shop for a while, which you probably also missed because that was pre-levelhead too. Mm-hmm. Um, well, did we sell those shirts? No, I don't think we did. We so we did a run. Of them. We did yeah. a run, didn't we? Yep. 
Um, pretty small run though. Um, but yeah, it's like one of those like pretty 50 of them out there in the wild somewhere. Yeah. Um, but we, yeah, we were at a merch shop basically since the launch of original Crashlands for, for several years. Uh, but it was just such a pain in the ass. And so it, it was, expensive. it was a loss. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a loss in, in every way in terms of time spend and money coming in versus going out. It's really the reality of managing real inventory is not, uh, it's not in our wheelhouse. It's, it's not particularly. <laughs> so it's, and one it's of those a scale like, game, right? Like, the, yeah, yeah. yeah, it only really works at, at a sufficient scale. Yeah. I think plush yep. is definitely in that category of stuff that would, would be nice to do, but is like hard to do for all the reasons. Um, and honestly, like, yeah, Shenanicon and the Shenanicon Jam, they're, they're kind of the same category where it's like, these are all things that are very, they're very fun to do or to have done. But um, doing them is when you're contending also then with just the limited resources that a team of our scale has is it just always ends up being that really challenging like okay we need to do x y and z to put on this community event but that's delaying our game now <laughs> by x y and z time yeah. and it's definitely not gonna it's not gonna do what that would do in terms of costs or whatever else you know um so i think that that's really the bulk of it you know it's just like it's hard to put on really good events and it's, it's also one of the things like we're not just trying to throw something together you know and so they, they if you want an event worth attending that yeah then it needs to be it needs to be big like it needs to have enough things going on in the event and also you know reveals of stuff that is exclusive you know you have to have reasons to to go right like I, I think back back in the days that we kind of started that up uh you know i I personally had, you know, as a big fan of uh, like Blizzard and seeing mm -hmm. BlizzCon and or like I, th I think Minecraft had their yep. Minecon kind of going around that time. And so, you know, starting to see like these these studios or these uh, communities kind of forming together to like have a annual events to celebrate their games and stuff like that. And I know like at, at that time I had a kind of a vision of like wanting to, you know, be on the stage and like unveiling stuff mm -hmm. to the big crowd, you know. Um, but even having done like a – so having, you know, given talks at GDC and, and uh, doing the small conventions that we did and all that, uh, now I look back and I'm like, no, I just want to <laughs> – I just want to like work on my games – and publish them, and I want people to enjoy them. But I don't need to be uh, in a spotlight with a with a megaphone. Yeah, you know, like a, that's. Well, I think, yeah, I think I agree with that too. That in, in the earlier days, it also kind of felt like being a public figure was was kind of like what was kind of it felt like it was required, right? Because yeah. like because we're out there looking at all the other successful indies and stuff, right? But of course, the only ones you see are the ones who have become a public figure right so we're talking like rami ismail and and a, yeah, a, through, through other a people, huge right? amount of time like i think at one point we we looked at, at at the volume of rami's tweets and kind of like how many hours a, a year you know is he spending on twitter and it's you know it's it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds right yeah Maybe even mean, thousands. and if you're making it part of your job it's you know it's a it's a significant part of your job, right? And if you're trying to do it in addition to what your job is, then well, it's going to cut into everything else that you want to do, right? It's a, it's a really big undertaking. And I think there's a, it, it felt like in the earlier days, since again, only, the only thing you see are the public figures, that that was part of what the success path looked like, um, is yeah, that you had to like, you had to have that component. Um, yeah. And so like, that, that was a lot of why I felt, I kind of felt like we needed to, but I also like kind of wanted to, like it seemed fun, you know, to have. It is fun. I think it is enjoyable. You know, yeah. it's just like, I think it, it's always the, to me, it's always the prioritization problem. 
just like all the way back down, which is like, if you're spending, you know, we do this in the studio. We occasionally people give talks on the studio team and, you know, we set aside, say like, you know, 30 hours for a 60 minute talk sort of a thing. It's a whole, a whole work week plus, you know. To- yeah. And so like the reality is like the cost of that is, is actually very high, you know, in terms of uh, production time. And so I think what it is, it's a combination of like both moving to a place where you, where you're, because we're actually paying, you know, ourselves and employees now, as opposed to when you weren't, we weren't paying anybody. You didn't have any, you were like, Oh, time ourselves. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. And so it's very easy to, I'll be just as broke at the end of this as yeah, I was at the beginning. Exactly. It doesn't really matter. Nothing has changed. <laughs> but I think now it's a very different thing where it's like, Oh wow. Yeah. That actually costs a lot of money to do. Yeah, so is it worth it? The answer just increases and becomes no. Well, this is true for kind of everything, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think to that point, you know, because now we're looking at like where we're supporting a team of seven full time people, eight full time people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's slowly all, it's all of our livelihoods, yeah. right? And, mm-hmm. uh, and so, you know, we're, we're looking out on our runway, and our runway right now is healthy, but it's not bulletproof, you know? Yep. Um, we still got to launch Crashlands 2. We still got to make the next gate. Like, we still got to yeah. keep And keep each on one of these on, things know? takes years, you know? So, like, the just the the sheer cost of of running an actual professional studio that people's livelihoods actually depend on, right, is very different than, like, sure. trying to figure out how to break into the industry as, a, as just, you know, burning through your savings, not paying anything, um, and and not really having a future, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's it's very different, and so I think the the cost of that is, yeah, it's just so enormous that now everything else when we're looking at doing, we're like, well, yeah, just, we could, but it cuts our runway and doesn't actually make it more likely that we get to make the next game, you know? Yeah. So I think I, but I think also there's there's the trap that you can fall into, right? Which is the whole like hours worked is the metric thing, right? And I'm not trying to try not trying to make that argument where it's basically like anything you're doing that's not directly, you know, putting you one next line of code or one next pixel toward your game being released is somehow not good. Because it is the case that oftentimes, you know, if we go to a, a conference or take the time putting these talks together, we get a lot of stuff personally out of it, right? Um, it's just the case that as as the business has matured and the amount of responsibility has gone up, the what previously was felt like a, a relatively even trade there has become because it's not really quantifiable in terms of, you know, if we give it, if Seth gives his, uh, say his talk on, on level head and DevOps, and that helps us clarify just internally in the studio, a bit more of our DevOps understanding. It's just impossible to know how exactly that has cascaded in useful ways, right? For us internally, it has, I guarantee it has, but how exactly, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you can't put a number on it. It's so, yeah. It's so basically as the actual number gets bigger, right? Uh, associated with not participating in, uh, say, moving the studio project forward, whatever, then it becomes harder to to more calmly be like, we're going to yeah, take the time to do. Right, because you're saying it's a, a guaranteed did. cost, exactly. which is always increasing, and then a possible return, which you can't measure. So <laughs> so at a certain point, you start to, you start to you know, bias toward like, and, but there's also, I think there's a point on the other side of it. There is. Yep. Where, where like, if, if your company gets big enough, so if you think about like BlizzCon, right, where they have several different IPs, they got you know, Overwatch, Warcraft, Diablo, mm-hmm. and then they, they do have StarCraft, but they keep forgetting about it, but it's there. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then there's some new IP, I think, that they're probably going to unveil. This and they've got thousands fall. of employees, right? So the but scale yeah, got, is different. They, well, that's it, yeah. They have, well, they have, and they have millions have, uh, of players per IP, tens of millions of players per mm-hmm. IP. Yeah, thousands so of a convention, you yeah. know. And they have they have employees and different, like, so they'll have like, here's, 
some of the art team from this game, right? right? And, and they're doing a panel, right? And so you don't have to shut down production of the whole game because you're putting on this convention, right? You just grab these few artists, be like, yeah, you're going to do a panel. Just answer questions. You don't have to prep, right? Yep. Just show up, do the panel, right? And then you'll have like the game director come up and give a keynote or something. Um, and so so like you have different – a whole bunch of different people who are involved in the, in the game's production get to take their turn and do their little thing. And it's not like each one of them has to figure out how to entertain an audience for three whole days by themselves, you know. Kind of mm-hmm. so, yeah, so I think uh, it's, it's actually a weird thing where I think um, in the – like Adam was saying, in the early days, I think it's also an early part of the social media experience, which was that it largely felt like you – it was almost like a new responsibility that you had to be managing your – this like personal brand thing. That's how it's, right? I mean, that's how it's presented to you, you know, is that yeah. personal brand, personal, personal brand. brand. And you have to do it. Yeah. Yep. Which, you know, in retrospect, frankly, is insane because again, because of the scaling problem, which is like the reality is if you're looking at any celebrity, anybody who is actually a brand, right. I'm not talking about like Jerry. They have Accountant, a PR team. But I'm talking about like, what? yeah, there's a team, right. They, and they, they are the, the tip of the spear for these things. But like, you know, if you're, I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger or something, you're not going to be managing your interview schedule during a movie like yeah. between your acting. You'll, you'll show up to the interview, but Correct. planning the interview and, and figuring out, like doing all the research to prep, it's like, you got, oh, you're paying somebody else to do that. Yeah. You know, yeah. somebody like, shows up, they give you some cliff notes and and that's your prep. And then you walk yeah. in. Right? So I, I do think, <laughs> I do think there's a really interesting interaction with the scale, which basically like it's most some things like Twitter or Instagram or whatever else, are, they're very attractive to you when you're trying to get started because, of course, it allows you, it does allow you to show your work to some people, right, uh, or to get some interest. But I think the reality is as you scale, there's basically this point, this like midpoint, right, where it takes enough time away from doing the thing that it becomes harder and harder to make it all make any sense because you can't full-time both simultaneously. And then there's on the other side where if you can cross over that where the team gets big enough, studio gets big enough, the games get big enough that you can actually have someone managing those things for you and then, yeah, kind of just show up. It's like you're just showing up to a panel. Like those are, panels are great. I love panels. Yeah. I think as as with all things, it's just there's a romance associated with really underappreciating um, the logistics behind yeah. these things and just seeing the end result, right? So like when, so when we talk about this a lot when people talk about, oh, I'd love to be an author. Um, and what being an author means is largely being alone in front of a computer typing for thousands of hours, mm-hmm. uh, which you could just do that. You could do it over the weekend. You could do it every weekend. You could, you know, you could do it. It's just sitting at your computer typing a whole fuckload. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people don't mean that when they say, I want to be an author, they say, what they mean is I want to, you know, show up at a book signing of a book that I've already written with thousands of adoring fans. Like that's what they want. And so I want to have, I want to have written a book, right. Um, Which is like, I want to have written a book. I get it. You know? Yeah. Which is very different than I want to be an author. Like those are two very different. I don't want to write that book. (laughs) I just want to have already written it, you know? Uh, Yeah. Uh, and so this is kind of the same where it's, it's easy to think that that's a desirable thing. Um, if you're only thinking about the sort of like outward perception of it that you have experienced as a final product, right. Mm -hmm. As opposed to what's actually happening behind the scenes to, to make the thing happen. And once you really get a taste for that, oftentimes you're like, you know what? I'm good actually. Yeah. If you see any of the behind the scenes stuff for any major, uh, content 
creator or social media personality or whatever, you know, it's just every waking moment of their lives is like, how do I stay on top of the algorithm? How do I make enough content? How do I convert every facet of my life into content? You know, I think it was like when they're talking about Ninja, you know, who had that huge rise a couple of years ago. Yeah. Fortnite Fortnite. streamer. Yeah. And, and then it was revealed like he had been, Basically every day, every single day. You're not taking a day off for like two yeah, years. Streams like twelve hours a day or something. It's like sixteen hours. It was insane. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds yeah. like and everybody's hell. like, this guy is some kid, he just plays video games all day. It's like He's Yeah, like, but like all day. <laughs> every yeah. and not games. Uh he plays one game and for sixteen while hours entertaining a a community via his yeah. chat and other social media platforms. Yeah, right? like because I don't know if anybody has like tried to play a game for sixteen hours straight for your own uh, enjoyment. enjoyment without an audience. Um, and even that is like it, it, it's doable, but it does get really, really exhausting. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time you get to the end. Uh, so you know, yeah, at hour eight, you're kind of like, oh, like <laughs> my body hurts. I'm gonna die. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, none of this. None of this stuff is easy, and if, if you're a, a spectator of it, you can you can just dip in and, and catch a little enjoyment of it, and then just dip right back out again. It's kind of like being an uncle versus being a parent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. You could just show up, cause some chaos, and bail, mm-hmm. and uh, you haven't had to do any of the shit involved with yep. actually making this thing happen. You know, uh, yeah. yeah. The list is long. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, just that's my answer. I, yeah. I would say that the short of it is that, that it's extremely expensive to do all that stuff. Some of that seems fun, like you know, putting on a convention or whatever. Some it is fun it, once it's done. Yeah, some, you know, once and, you're there. and some of it that either seems fun or seems like you have to. You know, either way, right? Um, but all that stuff is just extremely time expensive, and and the reality is that it, that it, that for the vast majority of people, it isn't worth the cost. Like if you look back in retrospect, right. Um, but there might be some other things that you get out of it. You might get a community out of it of other people trying to do the same thing. You might get some of your early fans into it and so on. Right. If you're looking at pure, like cost effectiveness, it's not there, but it's not there at all. Right. Because it is a factor of scale. And that kind of definitionally means the beginning when your scale is zero, that's the least cost effective it can possibly be, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. It's just that when you're not measuring things in money and runway and whatever, and you're just measuring things in time, which is ten- which tends to be the trajectory for people mm-hmm. in their uh, creative careers, right? Um, then it's easy to write off that time. And it's also easy to see like a hundred followers as a really big achievement, which is, which it is because going from zero to a hundred is really impressive. No, it's right? crazy. I mean, the thing is we were shocked when we had like 30 people or 40 people show up at Shenanacon. Yeah. And like most of them drove from all over the place. And it yeah. was, oh, it was awesome. truly, truly amazing. Right. But Shocking. it's also one of those, but it's also true that at that scale that had zero impact on our long-term success of the studio, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Which wasn't the point. So that's fine, right? That's not why we were doing it. But well, yeah, and you're not gonna you're not gonna like bring in new players, right? By throwing no. a convention for fans, it is for it is for the existing community. It's fan service. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just want to hang out. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, they're they're always they're so fun to do. But yeah, it's a hard one. That's a hard one. I mean, it's honestly, really you, things. That's the thing. You know, make crashes too. Could be go wish the on Steam. That's what I'm saying. Make that thing go big, and then we'll put another one on after Garrett. That's awesome. Yeah. If we sell, you know, a few million copies of Crashlands two, uh, you know, we'll, we'll think about. It. We'll think yeah. about it. No, I mean, honestly, if we didn't have to worry about our runway because we just were set, you know, 
Yeah, then you could do whatever you want. Because like, the fact is, like, I want to be streaming, like, development stuff. And I want to make more of our stuff publicly visible because then I can talk about it, you know? Um, it's just the value proposition is is you got to be rich enough that you don't, you got to yeah. be rich enough that there's no stakes anymore. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> well, like, yeah, it's I'll even do whatever. That's even open yeah. sourcing something like so. So yesterday I published a new visuals VS Code extension to that's purely for internal purposes, right? Which is basically to it's a it's a text based editor for our Quest stuff, right? And I was trying to decide like what to do with this. I was like, it's such a pain in the ass to like deal with stuff in a private way, you know, right? But if it's just published publicly in VS Code, then like anybody on the team can just go get it mm -hmm. and then it'll be auto-updated and all that stuff, you know. And I was thinking, I thought about it for like five minutes. So it didn't take very long to reach the conclusion that like it's fine if this is public. It doesn't leak anything yeah. of significance or whatever, right? But we still have occasions though with things like this where – where you have to be close. Where you just have to like, you have to like, yeah, you're just like, oh shit, I just can't. I guess another example is Seth submitted a, a bug ticket to Yo-Yo last week. And well, to Game Maker. To Yo -Yo Game Games Maker. has ceased to be. But, it's, yeah. but it, it is to Yo-Yo Games uh, GitHub because that's still the name of their GitHub. Oh, that's okay, <laughs> fair. Technically. Uh, but it's a tech, so we, tech, we out technical to each other. Uh, <laughs> are we out well actually at each other? Um, yeah. but, uh, but it was about an animation problem with with Spine, which is the software that makes these like little animated versions of 2D things, right? And so that's what GameMaker uses, and so that's what we use. And um, and there was a new issue where just there was some something that got janky at certain frame rates and stuff. So Seth put together a you know report and needed a sample project to fire off with it and so on. But the there's like, but what, what sample animation do I include? Right, because because yeah, it's like well, all ever all the animations we have are from Crash Nights too. Yeah, all of them. Yeah, it's just so it's just public. So now, right? yeah, could rope Sam in and have him whip like waste his time making a whole new animation and trying to recreate the exact bug, mm -hmm. you know? Yep. Or just fucking submit, just submit one of our Crash Nights two sprites mm -hmm. as a bug. So that's what and I did. Just say <laughs> it's probably fine. Like we're not we're not changing the licensing on it to say you can use this right or whatever. So like, right. so it's, so it, which makes it like now it's leaked rather than just made public. If that kind of yeah, makes sense. Right? But what's leaked is just like a picture of something in the, of yeah. one thing in the game, yeah. which we've already shown on trailers and, you know, and also like by the time we launch the game, that Sprite will have changed a lot anyways. And so, yeah, you know, essentially it's somebody has uh, a, a, a useless and outdated piece of, imagery from the game yeah. so but it, but it is still right. one of those things that are, every every time we're doing any of these kinds of things or, or we're talking about oh we want to make some content for uh about behind the scenes stuff about how we're making crashlands 2 you know but then there's still the question is like oh but what are we what are the implications what, yeah, what are the wrong? implications What's... and also like again it's like these just take time but they wouldn't really do much for us right so mostly we want to do them because they're fun yeah. to do but then they have all these risks associated with them and then and then they also just take away time from from making it more likely we get to keep doing this right yeah well they talk about so, it. on entrepreneurship there's a big there is this middle death valley that a lot of companies essentially die in which is that you you have enough business right to like pay yourselves to start expanding a bit um but you don't have so much that you can that you essentially are, are are well insulated from either mistakes or just things that you thought would be fun to do that were maybe more expensive than you anticipated, or didn't make any sense necessarily to the bottom line, but were serving some other purpose entirely. 
community building, whatever, right? And there's this gap where like you're actually still in you're actually still in a place where you have you actually have a lot to lose, right? So people's risk tolerance goes down. Um, but at the same time, it's like you, you don't quite have enough bandwidth to be essentially flinging around some extra weight, you know, and, and doing some of these things that you want to do. But you but it feels like sometimes you can. And so you have this little bit of a trap where it's, you can I think it's, it's kind of actually it's actually I think it's like it's about self-sufficiency of the company right because if you think mm-hmm. about like a, the startup process right is is somebody who has gotten money somehow whether they're just mm-hmm. sitting on it supportive spouse got funding whatever um who then starts a venture where that venture is not like the, so like when in our early days we weren't we had health insurance through other means right mm-hmm. um obamacare yeah through yeah through obamacare through spouses or whatever and we were also supported through spouses right so so and, and otherwise through like money we'd saved in our time up to that point right so yeah, so which is we strung company, stuff together the company wasn't self-sufficient by any stretch right it's basically we're putting the costs elsewhere and then over time as you start to get success you start to pull those costs into the company so the company, the company itself is becoming the entity that creates that. You're not relying on external sources to keep the thing going, or or, or, or people who are fresh out of college and maybe in a privileged enough position where they can have a low salary for a while, you know, like that kind of stuff, right? So much of what you're doing in the early phases of this stuff, whether it's a solo or whether it's a small group, is putting the costs somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. And but the costs, they're there. They're there, and they're really expensive, just, right? You just put them somewhere else. But over time, as you manage to pull them, but what success basically means is you've pulled those costs into the company, right? Mm-hmm. And the company is now able to, but also has to, pay for those, right? So so it moves you from this position where it feels like, and I think this this idea of like that death, that death yeah. gap, you know, yep. I think it's actually – It's an illusion, yeah, it's, it's actually transition. this. It's a transition between you basically. What's the what's the word for that? Where you're where you're using other people's resources to prop yourself up, you know, whatever or other resources. There's a word Leverage. that I'm looking for. I don't know what it is, but you're, 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 well, you're, yeah, like it's it's like a debt, like right. You're you're leveraging all these other ways of yeah. Of, well, it's uh, like it's propping like, up the company. You know? Yeah, it's like how how a lot of really large companies pay their employees really poorly to the point where the, where huge fractions of their workforce are on public assistance programs of various sorts, right? Um, and they're, In the U.S. In the U.S., yeah. yeah. So they're basically... Yeah. It's about they, Walmart specifically, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so part of the way that they prop up their company is by the reliance on the fact that their employees will actually get money from some external source completely, right? And But that's that's also like, that's how a startup works. That's how we start, right? Uh, in, in this whole thing is it's all external. So I think it's it's got to yeah. be that point where the more stuff you actually are able to internalize. And also the other thing you're doing is you're offsetting the future, right? Because you're also saying things like, well, we're not making enough money to survive like for the yeah, long term right now. Yeah. <laughs> but if we, if this is successful, then we can kind of back pay yep. and it'll be fine, right? So you're, you're also borrowing from some kind of nebulous future. And so all those things start to arrive as you get some level of success. And holy shit, are they, is it really expensive no, to no. actually have a company that is actually paying people, actually providing help, actually doing all these things, right? In a way that means that if those people continue to work there indefinitely, that their quality of life would be good and stay good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you're not borrowing anymore from like a nebulous future where everybody gets paid more, where you're not borrowing from people's external sources of of support, support. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, essentially, like being a small startup is all about not doing things, 
Yeah. And then and then starting to reach any tier of success means the bills start to come due, right? Yeah. And like that's the point where where and things those get a little shits bit are. Expensive. I remember the first time yeah. we saw <laughs> we saw some number at some point that we just balked at in our earlier days where it was first. But it was also where we were making fun of it because it was like a San Francisco company where everything's infinitely more expensive, you know. Mm-hmm. And they were like, we we basically assume that it costs us ten thousand dollars a month to have an employee, right? Was what that was the number that we saw. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at the, over here in the Midwest being any, like- Any employee, any employee, no matter what. Yeah. No matter what like, you're actually- doing. And we're like, you're not paying people that. And we're like, 120K is like a, that's a great Crazy. salary, right? So we're like, you know, that's, that just seemed like so much to be like, no matter what you're doing, it's going to cost. But then, you know, then for a while we had an office and then we got health insurance, we got 401K, and, you know, we have all these things now and we're paying people decent salaries, right? Payroll tax. And- and holy shit, once you tie all those things like, together yeah, and once like, the oh, yeah, taxes that right. come into play, <laughs> yeah. uh, it really well, even, it is so well, Even just the idea of like payroll tax, which is that, you know, and like if, if you haven't been on the other side of payroll, like if you've only received your, your paycheck and never had to like compose one and hand it out to somebody, which you don't realize in this – it's often hidden from you in, in various ways, or unless you're looking for it. So the payroll tax is is tacked on top of your salary that the company pays. Yeah, and it's generally it's something like 10 percent or ten to fifteen percent or something like that. So, uh, so that means like if if your salary is a hundred thousand dollars, for example, then that that company had to pay ten thousand dollars in taxes just for the privilege of giving you the hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. And then when you get the hundred thousand, the government takes income tax from you, mm-hmm. right? So. So it's like you and the company are paying taxes on both sides of it. And so when you're looking at the numbers of like, here's what it costs to have an employee, um, and in many cases, neither the company nor the employee gets gets chunks of that money. It just oh, goes yeah. away. It's just, right? gone. <laughs> it's just gone. But it's also like because your your legal requirements go up because I remember uh, there was – when we put Crashlands into Apple Arcade, that's Crashlands mm-hmm. Plus, right? Uh we were confronted with the fact that our business insurance was insufficient for Apple's pre- liking, right? And so we had to like oh, – yeah. and we already had to have business insurance anyway because it's a thing once you start employing people, you have to do, right? And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, we need a $2 million policy or something like that. Which is a bigger it one. cost us $2 million. It just means that's how much – It's what it costs, yeah. <laughs> uh, and – and so we had to go through that. We have to we because we have all this web stuff we're doing. We have to deal privacy with shield. privacy stuff, mm-hmm. and so now we have GDPR compliance we have to deal with, right? Like the list, and then of course we have everybody has subscription services, like a jillion of them that we're paying for and managing, right? And just the sheer volume of stuff it's just is uh, the more you, if you want to do stuff, you just there's an infinite list of things that keep coming up that you just have to keep doing, you know, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty tough. So yeah. uh, let's let's get to the next question. Yeah, yeah. This next question Still. comes from Mimabip Gorky, who says, "I like this. This is a good <laughs> one." Who says, "What's the reason why you opt in to displaying game makers splash screen?" Hmm. Some gamers think there's a strong correlation to the quality of a game based on the engine used. Unreal has marketed themselves to reach out even to gamers where they seem to think everything is bad unless it's made in Unreal. Even if only a very small portion of players have a negative reaction to knowing what engine a game was made in before they play it, I can't think of a positive reason to include it that would outweigh this. Mm. All right. So this is interesting because this is not what you think. Mm-hmm. So for starters, we don't we don't display game makers splash screen. There's a built-in splash screen 
in GameMaker that uh, for quite a while, I don't know if this is still true, but for quite a while, it was forced to display on people who, uh, on free, uh, on games that were made using the free tier of GameMaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, part, like part of the benefit of paying premium is that you don't have the splash screen pop up, right? Yeah. In theory. So yeah, and so Unity did the same thing, and the yeah, and the thinking from these companies was well, exposure bucks. Most baby. yeah, exposure bucks. Most people making most people using our product are using the free tier because that's just how money works and stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, which means a huge majority of the games made in our software, we are not getting any kickback from at all. It's just a cost. So can we turn these games into an advertising opportunity by forcing our splash screen in front of them uh, so that any players will see that our engine exists? Yeah, right? While also adding an incentive to the developer to pay pay up some cash mm-hmm. they don't have to do that so they get to feel like they fully own the thing that they made on the other side. Right? Yeah. So the downside of this is – uh, the people making high-quality professional tier games who ha- who are paying for licenses and paying for enterprise software, et cetera, do not advertise the fact that mm-hmm. they made this great game with your engine. Meanwhile, every hobbyist who slaps together a game in 30 minutes uh, uh, is putting your engine's logo yeah. in front of it, right? Yeah. So Unity has this problem. GameMaker had this problem where it, it creates a perception that the engine is bad. Because yep. the um, only time you see the engine symbol is before a bad big game yeah, experience. Yeah. yeah. And so like Unreal Engine is great. It's very easy to make absolute shit games with Unreal Engine because mm-hmm. it's absolutely easy to make shit games with anything yeah. because yeah. making shit is easy. Yep. <laughs> so uh, for starters – Even in like, Unreal, you know. And, yeah. In Unreal, so, it's more likely that your shit game just looks good right out of the gate. But It's going to look great. Probably it's going to be shit, yep. but yeah. you know, it's going to look amazing. Uh yeah, and so there, for starters, like this this perception of the engine somehow dictating anything about the quality of the game is uh, – it's dumb. I'll just say it's dumb. Yeah. <laughs> it's what well, I just, would say it's it's a reasonable uh, inference, right, from – Given the audience, evidence that you given see. Given the evidence. Yeah. But yeah. It, is, it is not related to – But if you think about it a little bit more. Yeah. yeah, yeah well, I, I think the other part of the yeah. perception too right, is that like Unreal is in C++. It's for hardcore, serious – Oh, so you know, hardcore game developers, right? So, so the idea is that there's this like there's the impression that there's a bar that mm-hmm. people kind of have to have already met to be using the engine in the first place. And, and Unity, same kind of a deal because that bar is way lower because it's like it's like really flo- focused on their is it blueprints in Unity? No, that's unreal. No, that's that's unreal. They should whatever their, the editor in Unity, is whatever there, yeah. Different, yeah. But it's the same idea, and it's and it's got a more it's a friendlier language, you know, so it's easier, it's more accessible, right? And then Game Maker, same deal all over again, only even more accessible. It's only I guess. I'm going to say 2D. only 2D. I know they'll tell you, hey, you can do 3D stuff, but it's just – if you're going to do 3D, use something else. <laughs> you know, that, it's wild that people do yeah. that. Uh, but it's like it's – and it's a – but it's a garbage collected language that's really JavaScripty, you know, and for a long time was – until a few years ago was lacking any modern niceties of like programming languages that you'd expect. Um, and, and so the, and it was really, it had this like drag and drop kind of, I think as soon as you say drag and drop, people are like, Oh, it's for babies. Exactly. And which of course, Unreal Engine has drag and drop. No, they're called blueprints. blueprints, Okay. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Take this. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) These engines are all capable of, of, of (laughs) incredible things. Right. And so it really just comes down to the creator. Um, and so when it comes to this questionable, like, why are we displaying the game maker splash screen and why would we ever do that if there's only downsides, essentially, is, is the, the framing of this, right? Um, 
because because there are people who don't care and then there's people who have a negative yeah. reaction. Yep. Well, so so we actually talked with the game maker team and said we want to show your splash screen in front of our game because if we have that people only think that the engine that we use is yeah. garbage. Yeah, in yeah. the yeah. long term we want people to have a more positive association with the game engine that we use, right? Yeah. And in that conversation with them we said well, all right. So for starters, we don't want just a picture. We we want to make a splash screen that actually is like looks good and is animated and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we worked with them to put together an animated splash screen that no other game actually has. Uh, and there's like sound effects to it and stuff like that, right? Like that splash screen is not actually Game Maker's splash screen. That's true. I forgot that. We made that yeah. with them because uh, their splash screen sucks. The one it's just, just a picture. Just a picture. Splash, yeah, it's just a picture. Yeah. Um, and so. In the conversation we had with them about wanting to do that, which that was when we also talked to them about considering not force showing the splash screen on unpaid versions of Game Maker because we're like – And in fact, we ideally want, do the opposite if anything. Yeah, because you know? yeah, we're like we want Game Maker to be a successful, well-respected engine because that comes back to us, mm-hmm. right? Like if they have – if they sell more copies and can expand their support staff and engineering, et cetera – then that's great for us, right? Yep. And so it's less about – I think it's, it's it's the thing we try to do with all things, which is try to play the long game, right? Mm-hmm. Like think in the long term of what's going to what's gonna make your life easier and better in five years or, or ten years. And for yeah. us, it's like, well, we are tethered to this engine. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. that we've done is, is in- tied to the success of Game Maker. And so we want people to know about it because it helps us. Right. Yeah. So, but also, I think uh, this perception there's risk involved with us like showing that is nonsense because when does a person see that splash screen? Right. It's when they're booting up the game to play it. Yeah. So if the person is so incensed by the idea mm-hmm. that it's a Game Maker game that they see the splash screen and quit before they even play the game, then like that's the kind of person I don't want to be dealing with kind of. Well, you're unlikely Period. to deal with them because it's because you have to pay for our games too. Yeah, right. Yep. Well, or if it's a subscription, or if you don't, then it's in subscription service. Then still like, got to download it. There's still a whole thing, you know. I just I don't believe there are people out there. Yeah, who who like I I do believe there are people out there who when they see like the logo for the engine oh, get put into a certain it. kind of a tone where they're like where yeah, they now yeah. look at the game differently as it comes up, right? Um, historically, that's been for us for our games is that. It's happily surprised instantly, like the moment they. Go We're just gonna the lower game. your expectations real quick, yeah. just so we can so, knock them out. Even so, high, again, you know? even <laughs> even if you have those low expectations for for like our games, the the end effect actually seems to be still more positive than anything because people come in and they're just like, because it's not a shit game. Yeah, so they're just fine. pleasantly surprised. So, so again, I, I don't think I just don't think there's any actual harm to to using it because it's fine. You don't yeah. use the opening of your actual game once it's deployed into people's hands as part of your marketing strategy. You know, they've already got it. They've already, they've got, already got the game. You've already done yeah. the hard part. You got the game to them, right? That is the hard part: getting somebody to get the dang game and boot it up. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. If you've gotten that far, Ooh, your splash screen doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's tough to kind of like push against these, but it it actually reminds me a lot of um, when Baldur's Gate came out, I saw this huge volume of people who said something along the the lines of, I didn't want to buy this because I hate turn-based games, but I decided to give it a try. And it's amazing. Hmm. I'm like, so this is the usual, usual, (laughs) it's usual. There's a genre. Everyone's got their genre that they're into. You know, and I, people, but don't. It's, there's a difference between being into something and categorically deciding that you'll never interact 
with something. I think for a yeah, lot of I people, that's, think they're kind there's of the not same. a difference. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I think you're, you're right that if you take a nuanced view on stuff and are, and are a curious person who just like likes to know, and, and if you're a person who understands that a label is an assistive tool to get a rough idea of something rather than any kind of an accurate descriptor, right? Yeah. Um, so that you're using those things for in that way and then you're just curious about stuff, then yeah, I agree with you that these are completely separate ways of like approaching the world. But I think for most people, they're sort of, their razor for how they go through life, you know, is like- High there's, level labels. There's so many things, right? Yep. So I just, there's stuff that I love and there's stuff that I hate and I use the category to separate those things because anything else requires time and like nuance- yeah, whatever, and I don't got it, but also it lets me find my tribe. And I have now I have things that I can make fun of and hate with other people, and things that I can love and what enjoy with other people. And <laughs> so I get my tribe at the same time, you know. And like, so there are all these the way you're being part of a group of, of people is oftentimes about choosing a thing to collectively dump on. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> that's why <laughs> we have the rule in our Discord of, yeah, of, of, you know, of. Let people like what they like for exactly that reason, because people's yep. tendency is to do exactly that. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, so it's, uh, yeah, it's so. So we decided, you know, people have biases, but we think that a good game can overcome those biases, you know. And so we thought we wanted we wanted Game Maker to be more successful. So that was our mm-hmm. that was our decision. Uh, I think that's probably all the time we have. We could we could try to do another one, but you know, is it's, it, it do would, you got a short one in there or is it? I mean, yeah, well, maybe. Let's go. Let's do it. We got okay. Some, we got so our, our last question comes from Fly Hoppy X Rampa, who says, "This is about uh, Crash Lands Two. Mm. Who says, are the new combat telegraph shapes for show, or are you actually doing precise collisions? If so, do you do anything special besides clicking the precise collision checkbox in Game Maker? Like, actually, so I'll, I'll kind of this is from a design perspective too, because this is the number one." kind of critical thing that people had with the Ballyhoo about, about these, right. Was the question of like, do I really have to like, especially with the knuckles where it's like two knuckles and like, it's like the place in between, there's nothing right. That you would actually hit. And people are like, do I really have to like line that up? And that seems like it would suck. Right. Was kind of the impression. (laughs) It's a good question for all these. Well, the answer is yes. You do have to line it up. It does not suck. Yeah, that's exactly. So, yeah. yeah, if it sucked, we you, would. Yeah, we I don't know why you would jump there. You know what I mean? You, you could just uh, you got to line it up. That's true. But uh, as far as how it's pers- how you're doing that calculation, I have no idea what. So there, all right, so the, so basically, I'll, I'll give like a very brief descriptor of kind of like the the way that you would do collision checking in, in a game, and then like kind of what we're what we're doing. So collision checking in a game is just, are these things overlapping? If yes, they are colliding and then you can have something happen. So that's like, you know, if you if, you're, if your character is supposed to like stop when they hit a wall or something like that, which is actually harder than you'd think because you're actually not supposed to go into the wall, which means you're not supposed to collide with the wall. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I mean? It's tricky. It's tricky. Don't get inside there because so, then you vibrate and get shot into space. Yeah. Um, and so figure being able to just ask that question, are these two things overlapping is... It's one of the perennial questions of being a game developer. <laughs> yeah. um, it's the main question, really. It's, it's really the main is. question. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, there are ways to do it that are cheap and fast. So a, a good example would be if you have two things that have circular collision masks, they're just circles, then to ask whether they're overlapping, you just add their two radii together and then just see how far apart their midpoints are and then just be like, Boom, done. are they close? Are they closer than this or farther than this? So you're just going to like, 
do a quick distance calculation and compare two numbers. Easy peasy. Right? What if you have a wacky ass knuckle shaped telegraph? If you've got something that is concave, convex, uh, doing all sorts of weird shit, very weirdly shaped, then then the, the game maker's built in kind of way of handling this is something called precise collision checking, which means that pixel by pixel, that's, this that's thing will be checked. Very expensive. That shit, yeah, that is. Yeah, we're talking expensive and and compute. And computation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. If you do precise collision checking, you're going to have a bad time. Yep. Uh, and so we don't do precise collision checking. Um, and also the other thing with, with those collision checks is you need a, a sprite. You need an image in order for the pixels to be calculated, right? Um, our telegraphs and questions too are not sprites. They don't and they do not. What? And they do not use precise collision checking what? from GameMaker. Uh, but they do precise collision checks but of my own <laughs> variety. Uh, so basically the telegraphs that you see um, behind the scenes are just made out of circles and triangles. Mm-hmm. Primitives. Uh, They're easy yeah. to do the calculations. Those, those are the two primitives. And then uh, we, we can we can take the circles and uh, like turn them into donuts by cutting out mm-hmm. the center and also turn them into arc shapes by, you know, just slicing out other parts of the circle. Right. <laughs> um, so that, so then since the telegraphs are visually, you know, they have these interesting shapes to them, but behind the scenes, they're composed of these two types of primitives. Then our collision checking isn't about checking pixel by pixel. It's just about you, you the, run through the primitives and ask, do you need these primitives over? Yeah. Right? Is this triangle overlapping? And, and, and also the, uh, the characters or like the, the things that you're hitting, they have pretty simple uh, hit boxes where either it's like a square shaped base or a circular shaped base. So that asking like, is this triangle overlapping this circle? That's, there's some math there that you can do. That's not about checking every individual pixel kind of a thing. So, yeah. So just a matter to like coming up with the, the code to, uh, ask about those primitives and then also making the code to take those primitives and turn them into an image, like to render them out into a, into a sprite, which is just a little bit of, a little bit of sh- shader. Do you also do a magic early check where you have like a bounding box around the whole thing? Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's, mm-hmm. yeah. Cause that's another thing. That's another common trick that you'll use is, is cause you have to figure out first, to avoid doing expensive calculations that you wouldn't need to do. You see, is there a cheap one I can do to like, tell me just, is it even possible that I would need to do these calculations, right? So for that, you can basically draw a circle around the whole thing or a square, right? But circle for ease, you draw a circle around the whole thing. And then you first ask, is there anything within this circle? Like any of these things that I need to check for, right? And if the answer is no, don't bother doing all those complicated don't just don't worry about checks, it. you know? Um, and you can further break things down if you need to into like, oh, now I've got, now I've got it in quadrants. I can, got it, I can do it in whatever, right? And a lot of, you see this for pathfinding and for all kinds of stuff. Anything that's really mm-hmm. computationally difficult, You'll have all these like early outs and all these like higher level questions you can ask first to be like, is it even possible that I would need to do this? And you try to put your cheap calculations up high so you can early exit and not do those really expensive ones. And Mm -hmm. so much of optimization of games is just that. And I will say one of the benefits too of the system as it's implemented is that the calculation is done at a moment in time, in the case of like a telegraph. In one frame. Yeah. In one frame, which means that you're not, this isn't a constant check. It's not It's not you running against a wall and us asking constantly, but are you in that wall? Are you in that wall? Are you in like every single frame trying to make sure that you don't slip into it, right? We don't have to do that because it's just when the hit lands, that's when you do the check. So yes. it ends up being less expensive than you'd imagine. Yeah, and the, the visuals of it are pre-rendered, right? So, so then, uh, which like we compile those 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they're just pre-rendered. So that way, like, we don't have to spend any computation showing you the telegraph. And then, like Sam said, we just use the collision checks in one frame. So mm-hmm. it's it's pretty cheap. Um, it is it is the case, though, that, like, we're starting to have a lot of them, mm-hmm. uh, quite, a, quite a lot. And so I'll probably need to add some cleanup steps and stuff so that we can kind of, like, compose the images on the fly whenever you're using that p- weapon or that thing. And then if you haven't used that thing or haven't seen that telegraph in in a while, then we can just like purge it, eat that thing out of memory and right. uh, get rid of it, you know? Because yeah, like on mobile and stuff like that, uh, the texture memory of all those telegraphs is it's starting to get a little big. Yeah, I mean, all, it's like, I mean, it reminds me a lot of like the business stuff we're talking about, which is yeah. like, you know, some, some things are going to work and be cheap. And then as you start to scale, you know, the bill comes due at some yep. point and you've got to kind of redo some things or, or it's going to get real bad. So, um, uh, yep. yeah, it's, uh, and it took, it took, it took weeks. It took several weeks to, to come up with this telegraph system and how to do all the collision checking. So it's, you know, it's not, I understand. Yeah. I understand if you're a game maker user and you're like, how the fuck? Mm-hmm. It was hard. It was very hard. And it took a <laughs> yeah, long time. It was hard. <laughs> But now we, that uh, is the thing. We just make whatever shapes we want in the back, you know? Yeah. With our little with our little editor in the game changer. Mm-hmm. So, uh, all right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you very much for the questions. Uh, we'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Sampa Acosta, for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, you can just go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the podcast archives. And also, as always, uh, if you haven't yet, head on over to Steam and give Crashlands 2 a wish list. It helps boost it in the uh, Steam charts and gets more exposure, and it helps us out in the long run. So uh, if you haven't done that yet, we'd appreciate Please do. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.